0: what's going on rev okay okay a few people um the rest of you guys you know it's whatever you don't have to pay attention um i'm up here every week so you know you'll see me next week um hopefully um thank you everybody for coming out to free market uh we had a really great turnout and um we were able to give away a lot of free gifts to people um clothes and and electronics and just a lot of uh a lot of everything and so we just want to thank you for serving um And hopefully we can uh, do some more throughout the rest of the year. I have some announcements tonight. Small groups. Um, We have pretty much a small group going on every night of the week. So if you guys would like to get more involved, um, you know, Shawnee, the semester is about to end. So if any of you students are are still staying here, um, we're hopefully going to be still doing some small groups throughout the rest of the year. So it's no excuse not to um, be plugged in somewhere. Um, Every Sunday after Revolution, Stephen is doing a small group. So if you guys would like to stay after the service, if you're busy the rest of the week, um, you know, maybe after Sunday nights is a good time to come to a small group. Um, every Monday night, we are um, doing uh, stuff at the college, um, Bible studies. So is tonight the last week for that, Dave? Okay, tonight's the last week for that. Um, maybe Dave will uh, do something else along the summer, maybe not, we'll, we'll see. Um, but uh, Tuesday nights, uh, Dustin Cooley is leading a small group. No? No? Oh, done for the school year, I guess. I lied. Um, Just forget everything I just said about stuff continuing the rest of the year. Um, He's whatever. Um, Ryan Rolfe is doing a Bible study on Wednesday nights. So um, if you guys would like to be involved with that, I think it's more older uh, people. But, you know, if you're young, don't feel intimidated. Um, And Thursday nights, I'm doing a guys' small group. So if you guys want to get involved with that, um, see me after the service. Um, Every third week end of the month, every Friday around 5.30 or 6, Allie and AJ will be um, doing cookouts. They'll be heading up those. So if you guys would like to um, volunteer time, um, it'd be a great, uh, it's a great East End ministry that we do to help reach out to the folks in the community. So if you guys want to help out, see Allie and AJ if they decide to, to show up tonight. Um, what? Oh, they're in Springfield. Okay. Just, you know, see them whenever you guys can because um, they're not here tonight um, for, for good reason. Yeah, go to the loss. They, you know good plug Holly um pretty much everybody here or everybody that works at the loft goes here so that's that's good um we're filling every street of Portsmouth um tonight uh Gary Chafins from uh Grace Community at Bigelow will be giving the message tonight so so yeah as you guys um get done greeting everybody uh give him a good round of applause he's the good looking dude in the back um he's you know whatever um say so I think that's it that is all the announcements that I have um so I was thinking for something you guys to, to you know um, fill in the awkward gap as you introduce yourselves. And so like if you knew, if we knew, you know, I know the Bible says otherwise, but if we knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow and we knew we had to have one last meal, as if we weren't going to eat with Him in heaven, um, like what? And you got to choose, you know, what would you what would you like to eat as your last meal? Um, so just introduce each other and uh, think about that.
1: Okay, can you hear me now? Did I hear someone bark while ago when they called my name? I don't think I've ever had that. I didn't know if it was a boo or a bark. I was confused. This place is cool. I'm used to a big pipe organ behind me, and uh, this is kind of freeing. I can't even see anyone. Uh, if you will, turn, open your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. And as you are turning there, let me say how thankful I am to have an opportunity to fill the pulpit here. Uh, the stage, if you will, here at Revolution. And I know that Dave is actually, he, he doesn't act like it, but he's sweating right now, and he's praying that I don't mess this whole thing up for him. I have no doubt about it. So in light of that, I decided to spend the next three hours to address the theological significance of the eschatological dimensions of the sanctified life in the premillennial view of predestination. That is my topic. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm doing a rebuttal to Dave's sermon from last week. That's what I'm planning to do. Now, in all seriousness, letting someone preach in your pulpit is like giving the keys to your car to someone with your kids in the back seat. Um, and I know that you only get the keys if you're trusted. So for that reason, Dave, I am considered an honor that you would allow me to, to preach here and to take this opportunity. I know so many people here from the coffee shop alone. That's all I know. Uh, so I want to take a moment and introduce my family to you. They're not able to be here with me, and I think we have some pictures. That's my kid as a baby. <laughs> and then they grew up on me, if you want to look at them as they grow up. <laughs> Cute kids, huh? I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I have a real family. You think that's a joke too, don't you? Do You think my picture's a joke. That is my daughter, Callie. She is seven years old, and she 's probably at home singing, "Let it go right now it 's my son Carson, he is four, and that 's my wife april we 've been married and it'll be august uh, in August for ten years and uh, she has been a faithful supporter of me and I know everyone 's thinking, "How in the world did you land that?" and it just so happened. I won the lottery the same night she decided to say yes, so it 's weird how that works out, but she has been a faithful bride to me, and i 'm so appreciative. Uh, Uh, Again, in supporting me in the ministry and supporting me uh, even through all the stupid decisions I have made in my life. Um, I serve as one of the pastors at the Grace Community Church at Bigelow. I've been there for three years, and I absolutely have no clue how that worked out or why I'm there or what I'm doing still. Uh, Actually, I think the church is having a prayer meeting tonight that I don't find my way back is what I heard, so... In all seriousness, I I love our fellowship. I love the church of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's a tremendous joy to serve as an under-shepherd to the great shepherd of our souls. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 through 21. And I think they was going to try to get it on the screen. um, And I'm reading from the ESV. So don't throw anything at me if that's a problem for you guys. You're not as sanctified as I am. (laughs) Ephesians 3. Verse 14, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, via inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he's carried along by God's Spirit. He writes this, For this reason, that is, all of chapter 3, the eternal purposes of God in Christ, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in your inner being. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for an opportunity to be here with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Some I know, some I don't know. But I'm thankful to know we'll know each other for all of eternity. And this is just a foretaste of what we get to experience uh, by your grace. This evening, I know that I'm, I'm nervous, I'm new here, I know that I'm not well-spoken. But I trust that I take a back seat, that your spirit would go forth and uh, take your word, dig it deep into our hearts, and let much fruit come for your glory in each person that's here, including my own heart, my own life. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Before we dive in, I, a couple of things I want to confess. Uh, one, I'm a very insecure preacher. This is who I am, so I depend on my notes a lot. Um, I have no seminary degree. I have a horrible mind. And I'm not very cool, as if that is shocking to any of you guys. I don't have the passion of a John Piper or the sense of humor as a Matt Chandler. Nor can I grow a beard like a Dave Dowdy. So this text is not and I realize this quickly, is not a good place to go for an insecure preacher. How on earth am I supposed to teach you tonight about the love of Christ in which the Apostle Paul himself says surpasses knowledge, in verse 19, which literally means it extraordinarily exceeds knowledge. That is, how am I supposed to help you understand something that transcends your ability to even understand it? So that's the task that um, somewhat I have before me. But as we look at the text, and I guess it's not on the screen, so in your Bibles if you can see in the dark, um, we come to see that this text is not just some paragraph out of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology or some uh, theological training book or something like that, but this is a prayer. Verse 14 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And then in verse 16... He says, I'm praying that the Father would would grant you certain things. Essentially, he's praying that the Ephesians would comprehend the incomprehensible, is what he's praying there. So it seems, by him even praying this, that there's at least a sense in which you and I can begin to comprehend this concept of the love of Christ. Paul, he doesn't pray for things that are totally impossible, that wouldn't even make sense. But he does pray For things that only God himself can do. For things that only God himself can provide. And he's sure, he's confident that God can do the impossible. And I see that in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power that's at work within us. So just think about that for a moment. The father is able able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or we can even think. And to communicate that, Paul used the word in the original language that literally expresses the highest form of comparison that is even imaginable. It means that the Father is able to do things beyond our ability to even comprehend it. We can't even fathom what he can do. He's able to exceed our expectations in every way possible. So what that means is that what the Father is able to do is as as mind-blowing as the love of Christ itself So what's going on here is Paul prays to a God who is able to do things that surpasses your knowledge so that you would know the love that surpasses your knowledge. Got that? Paul prays to a God who is able to do things that surpasses your knowledge so that you would know the love that surpasses your knowledge. So, this is what I've been trying or praying to accomplish tonight. I've been praying, the Lord would allow me to help you and me to comprehend the incomprehensible, and I'm trusting that God is actually able to do it, and to help you to understand this love of Christ that surpasses your understanding, I want to look at four things tonight, and I didn't time this, so I have no clue actually, usually during the week I'm, I'm practicing and end up having a death in the church, so I prepared for a funeral and it was just end up being a crazy week, but four things we're going to look at tonight one, the details of Paul's prayer, two, the reason for his prayer, three, the recipient of Paul's prayer. And for the key to seeing this prayer fulfilled in your and my life. So, first, the details of Paul's prayer. There's essentially two things that he wants the church to know in this passage. Number one, or he's praying for for the church in this passage. Number one, he prays that the church would continue to believe the gospel. And two, he prays that the Lord would position them to understand the love of Christ. Okay, so we're going to look at number one. He prays that they would believe the gospel. And I get this from verse 17. He's praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this should sound somewhat strange to us because we know that Paul is writing to believers. The church of Ephesus were already believers. And if we're already Christians, why would Paul pray that Christ would dwell in their hearts by faith? And here's why, at least what I believe why. Christianity is not about believing in Jesus once. Right? As if you, you, you believe in Jesus, you have faith, and it gets you in, and the rest of the time you're off on your own just to walk by yourself and to work for your own salvation. But the reality is, is that the entirety of our walk is a walk of faith. You guys know what this is about, right? It's a day-to-day fight that we have to trust, to continually trust Christ, to rescue us from our sin and its effects in our life. Think of it like this, you're in the middle of a, of a raging sea, Someone throws you a life preserver. You take hold of it. You're safe, right? You got a hold of it. This initial taking hold of this life preserver is your faith in Jesus. It's it's your faith in the gospel. However, the sea has not stopped raging. It's still stormy. The waves that are coming are huge. It's blowing hard on you. The, The rain is coming down. So, what do you need to do? Let go? No, you hold on tight. You keep clinging to the life preserver, and that's faith. Likewise, Jesus is our life preserver. He is our only hope. So trusting in him initially is absolutely essential. You've got to take hold of it if you're going to survive, right? It's your only hope. But trusting him continually is just as essential. Why? Because if you let go, you're in trouble, right? Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the Christian life isn't just entered by faith, it's lived by faith. Faith in the Son of God who died in our place. And I can't tell you how many Christians, even growing up, in, uh, I'm a PK, I'm a preacher's kid, I had a drug problem growing up, they drug me to church every week, that was my problem, my dad, if they cleaned the windows, the preacher's kids had to be there, Right? But so many believers are confused by this very principle. They think that the Christian life is entered by faith, but then you're off to yourself for the rest of the time. You've got to keep working for your salvation. And what's funny about it is I've never actually heard anyone say that They never admit to it, right? And actually, I doubt that any true believer would ever say, yeah, I'll become a Christian by faith, but now I live by works. But the reality is, is you don't have to say it to think it. And maybe this is you. Let me ask you, what do you look for or look to for assurance that you're really a Christian this evening? What do you look to to convince yourself that God has truly accepted you in Christ? Your own sincerity? Boy, I really meant what I prayed. I remember that. Maybe a past experience that you have with God, that time that you walked an aisle or somebody led you down the Romans Road or you prayed the sinner's prayer. Or do you look to your religious performance? Boy, the past few weeks, I've just been really good. Maybe you look to the fact that, you know what? You know what? Last week, I didn't even sin on purpose one time. I I don't remember the last time I willfully disobeyed God. Maybe that's what you're looking to. Or maybe you're comparing yourself to other people or sizing yourself up. Oh, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm pretty good right now. So I have assurance of my salvation what do you notice about all of these things that we run to for assurance? It's all about you. It's all about what you're doing and what you've done. In reality, that type of thinking says that you're actually trying to save yourself. That you're trusting in your trust or you're trusting in your own faith, your performance, your achievements, and not in Christ. And because of each one of us, I believe, has this tendency... To start by faith and then try to live the Christian life on the basis of our own performance. I believe this is why the Apostle Paul prays that uh, the, the love of, or that Christ would dwell, present tense, that he would continue to dwell in our hearts by faith. Again, he's already said back in chapter 2 that we've been saved uh, by grace through faith. It's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He's already said that. So in other words, I believe that Paul's praying that they would believe the gospel, that they already believe, they would continue to believe it, and not abandon it for works. So that's number one. Number two, the second thing the apostle pray, Paul prays is that the Lord would position them to understand the love of Christ, to put them in a position to understand Christ's love for them. The language here of positioning is translated may have strength to comprehend. It means to be fully capable of understanding or to be in a position to understand the love of Christ. Which, by the way, Paul talks about the love of Christ as limitless dimensions here. If you check out verse 18 and 19, he's praying that you may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So as we think about this, just like the faith in verse 17, the love of God is not new to the church either. And they're Christians. If they're Christians, they have to know something about the love of Christ. Back in chapter 2, verse 4 through 6, we see that, again, they do know something about the love of Christ. Paul writes this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So when you come to the prayer of chapter 3 that we're working through, it's important that you understand what the Apostle Paul is really saying here. He's not saying that I'm praying that you come to know something that is totally new to you or foreign to you. They already know this. He's not even saying that I'm praying that you love Jesus more. Instead, by praying this prayer, he's saying that even as a Christian, that we really don't even understand the love of Christ for us. That when we look at our sin, if you will, there's a part of us that forgets. We get gospel amnesia. We forget just how much God loves us, how much Christ loves us. There's a kid's song that uh, most of us probably know. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? When you hear this, you're like, man, yeah, that's a kid's song. That's Sunday school stuff, vacation Bible school style. Let's move on, though. That's, again, that's a childish thing. Let's move on to the deep stuff. But what I want you to know this evening is that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is the advanced stuff. Can you get any deeper than something that far exceeds your ability to comprehend it? Look at the last phrase of verse 19. It says, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Can you go any higher than something whose height cannot even be measured? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Can you get any fuller than the infinite fullness of God? Is it any fuller than that? This is the deep stuff. That little kid song is the deep end of the theological realm. We're talking about entering into the fullness of the God of the universe. And you enter into that fullness by knowing the love of Christ... So this is what Paul is praying for the church of Ephesus. So then the details of this prayer is that you would, one, believe the gospel, and that, two, in believing the gospel, you'd be positioned to understand the love of Christ. So now we've looked at the details. Let's look at the reason for this prayer. Why does Paul pray that you would be able to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ? There's probably many reasons, but I'm going to give you two. One, it's because of what the love of Christ is. And two what the love of Christ does. So in order to understand what the love of Christ is, you need to turn back to chapter 2. And I can't tell if anyone even has a Bible, so just trusting me that I'm not making up words as we go here at least. I am reading from the ESV, so again, I'm sanctified and holy. Paul, in chapter 2, Paul defines the love of Christ that he's talking about in chapter 3. So we're going to start with our condition in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. He says... And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Think about this. You were dead in your sins. You were going... Kind of with the, with the wind and a flow of a world of rebellion against the, the kind Creator, Creator God. You're unthankful, ungrateful, refusing to acknowledge His kindness, His generosity to you. You're under the influence of the supernatural powers of evil. You are a slave to your own sinful desires. You don't look at people as fellow human beings, but you look at them as obstacles or vehicles to deliver your own desires or to get in your way of satisfying your own desires. And as a result of this flow of your life, you have received what you deserve, the eternal death sentence, according to Paul. You are a child of God's wrath. And like physical death, being dead in your sins means that you are helpless to do anything about your own condition. That's you. That's you. And if you're not a Christian, that is still you this evening. So I can't say enough, uh, anyone that has followed me on Facebook, this is kind of my cup of tea. I can't say enough about this backdrop that we've got to understand to know the love of Christ for us. It's, it's an essential component, is to understand where we were to where he has brought us. This It's, it's the black velvet that stands behind, you ever go to a jewelry store and you see the, the collar that they lay the diamonds? It's always black. Why? Because that's where the diamond shines bright. It makes the diamond shine bright crystal clear in there. And the same is true in the Christian life. You have to understand your condition. So without a sense, a a real deep down in your heart sense of your own desperate condition, the threat of God's wrath coming upon you, you'll never be able to understand the love of Christ, the love that God has for us in Christ. So again, this is the necessary backdrop to his love. And if you just stop and think about that for a minute, this dead in sins... And you start looking at it from the proper angle, what you come to find out is that the love of God is a love that absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. It defies logic. It's a love that doesn't follow at all from our behavior, right? Not even makes sense. It doesn't follow the kind of person that you were, that you are. It's a love that can only be expressed in one word. And I think it's in chapter 2, verse 4. First word of chapter, or verse 4. The word, but. It's the only word I can think of that makes sense. It's the only word Paul uses here. In other words, even though this was the kind of person you were, even though the way you live should have resulted in condemnation, wrath, and the hatred of a holy God, he goes and throws a butt at you, right? Read verse 4 through 7. But God. So in spite of who you were, listen to this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, again, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us within the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is what the love of Christ is like. This is what makes it so scandalous and so shocking to us. It defies our logic. Why? Because it comes to people who don't deserve it. People like you people like me, right? The love of Christ comes to us in the midst of the worst sin that we can even imagine. In the midst of all of our questions to God, like, what about this? Or, what about that? Why do you allow this? All of our fist shaking at Him. It comes to us even when we reject this infinite love, when we think we're too good for His love. We're good enough to, to plead, if there's God out there, boy, I'm a good person, I'm good enough. It comes to us in the midst of our foolishness. This is not how human love works, is it? not how our love works. We love what is lovable. We love that which deserves to be loved. We don't love people who spit in our faces. We spit back. We don't love people who throw our gifts on the ground and stomps on them. We don't love people who expresses nothing but hatred towards us. Think about this. What parent loves the person responsible for the death of their only child? It doesn't make sense. What kind of person would sacrifice their life for this person? Yet, this is exactly, if you read Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 or 22, whatever it is, I guess the end of 21, this is the type of love we find. It's how it works. The great love with which He loved us, verse 4, comes in verse 5, even when we were dead in our sins the great love that God has for us, come to us while we were dead in our sins. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were in the process of making ourselves better, that's not what it says. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see what this means? It means that you were loved, welcomed, and accepted by the Heavenly Father even though he knows who you really are. He knows what type of person that you are here this evening, inside and out. He knows your past, he knows your present, and he knows your future. This tells me that he loves us with a love that we didn't earn, a love that we don't even deserve. It's a love not based on your performance or my performance, but it's based on the perfect Active and passive obedience of his son In whom the father looked down and said This is my beloved son In whom I'm well pleased So he can look at us and say This is my beloved son In whom I'm well pleased This is why I submit to you is why the apostle Paul prays That the Ephesians would come to understand The love of Christ The temptation that they would have had And that we have Is to think that the Lord's acceptance Is based upon our performance Right we struggle with that don't we I don't think I'm alone in this. The greatest temptation that we have is to think that salvation is not by grace, but it's by our works. So this is why Paul is praying that we would know the love of Christ, a love that's based on grace, not who you are or what you do, but on who he is and what he has done. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, Why does he do this? Because he wants to. This is how he rolls, if that's cool lingo to use, at a place like this. This is it. God is love. He loves to pour out his love on us. If you just read, let me read Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places To the riches of your good works, according to the riches of his grace. If you want to be convinced that the Christian faith is not about what you do for God, look at God's love for you in Jesus Christ. Think about that. Ponder that. How does it come to you? Does it come to you by, by again on your performance because you deserve it? No way. It's undeserved. It comes to us before the earth was even created. When we were dead, while we were yet sinners, it comes to us by grace. There's a second reason that Paul prays this prayer. Chapter 3 again, 14 through 19. Not only does he pray this prayer because of what the love of Christ is, but two, he prays it because of what the love of Christ does. So to understand what the love of Christ does, you've got to consider this prayer through the lens of the entire book of Ephesians. Uh, Kevin, one of the other pastors of the church, has preached through the entire book of Ephesians, and it was so helpful. But this prayer, verse 14 through 21, I believe is the hinge, if you will, the, the, the hinge in which the, or the text uh, uh, turns, I guess, of the whole book. The first three chapters, Paul's telling us about the amazing truth of what God has done for us, again, his choice of us before the world existed, what he has done in sending Jesus to come and die for us. All of this is an expression, again, of his amazing grace, Then the next three chapters talks about how we are to live in light of this. And this is the hinge of of all what's going on in this book. This whole thing is the, the hinge of this prayer. So what does it teach us? It teaches us that your life, my life, the way that we live is shaped entirely by our understanding of the love of Christ for us. Everything in the Christian life flows From the knowledge that you are loved in spite of who you are, what you've done, or how you failed. Think about this. Chapter 4, verse 1 tells us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Chapter 5, verse 2 says to walk in love as Christ loved us. So let's think about this. If you're convinced of the love of Christ for a piece of work like you, how will you treat those who aren't changing as fast as you would like them to change? be patient. That's chapter 4, verse 2. If you're growing in your confidence that you are loved and accepted in the heavenly courtroom of God, how will you speak to other people? You'll speak truth and love. That's chapter 4, verse 15. If you know that Christ's love comes to you in place of what you really deserve, what will your attitude be towards other people? Be humble. Right? You'll live in humility. That's chapter 4, verse 2 as well. If you are fully convinced that the Father accepts you, even though you deserve nothing but condemnation, will you forgive other people or will you hold grudges towards other people? You'll forgive. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. We could just keep going. The list doesn't stop. The entire Christian life flows out of your confidence the love of God for you in Christ Jesus and unless you know the love of Christ for you I just spit well, I hope you guys didn't see that my dad was one of those hacking and spitting preachers he sat in the front seat you need windshield wipers on your glasses it was a mess I mean, just going up and down and I don't do that but if you're looking at your life and you're wondering why you're not experiencing change I have a remedy for you at least I can diagnose you maybe not the remedy just yet, it's because you're not persuaded that the Lord really loves you. If you're wondering why you're not experiencing change in the Christian life, it's because you really don't believe that he loves you. That's your fundamental problem. And more than that, unless you fully understand his love for you, your motivation for obedience will always be out of whack. I mean, you're always going to be doing it the wrong way. What is the proper motivation to obey God? Love, right? do that. John says we love because he first loved us. So this is not something we work up. First uh, John 4.10, and this is love, not that we love God, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. So as, as, as we start drinking in the love of God for us, what will be produced in our life? Love for God, right? When we start taking in his love, It produces in us love for God, and therefore we will obey his commandments and won't be burdensome to us. So as you're drinking this in, what's going to motivate you? Love. So if you forget that Christ's love for you is not at all based on your performance, if you forget that, you'll start looking to your own obedience to keep God loving you, to keep God happy with you, to keep him on your side and... um, Below the surface, you'd be thinking, okay, Lord, did, did I do enough today? Now I lay me down to sleep. Please forgive me for all those sins I committed today. This, oh Lord, have I sinned too much? Right? We know that. We know this feeling. We all have been there. Is there anything I can do today to get you to love me more? Like, that's how we live. Does this sound healthy to you? I mean, think about this in, in, in relationships with loved ones. I mean, just constantly going around to my wife. Why, honey, do you, do you love me today? What can I do to make you love me today? You would say this is very unhealthy. And it is. Why then would it be any less dysfunctional in a relationship with a God who has showered you with a love that is better than unconditional love? Why is it better? Because it's undeserved love. John Owen said the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay upon the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is not to believe that he loves you. How much time do I have? Three more hours? Even more practical about the importance of knowing Christ's love for you. Unless you're convinced of God's love for you in Jesus Christ, your life will be a mess. We could put it like this. Every mess in your life demonstrates a failure to understand God's love for you in Jesus Christ. You say, where do you, where do you get that at? Ephesians. It's just the flip side of what we just said. You remember when I asked the question, if you're convinced that the Father fully accepts you even though you don't deserve anything but condemnation, will you be forgiving or will you hold grudges? You'll forgive people, right? Now then, let me ask you, why would anyone hold grudges toward someone else? In other words, what's the flip side? Well, If, if you won't hold grudges when you're convinced of the love of Christ, Then you will hold grudges when you fail to believe the love of Christ. The mess of grudge holding or unforgiveness, I don't know what's the proper terminology there, is the fruit of a failure to understand the love of Christ. say, well, I still don't get it. Why are you saying that? Let me ask you, what are you doing when you hold a grudge? You're refusing to forgive another person for the wrong they've done, right? That's what you're doing when you're holding a grudge. But what does the love of Christ teach us? It teaches us, when we start thinking through the love of Christ, it teaches us that our sin is so great that that you're too busy receiving the Lord's forgiveness to have any time to withhold it from someone else. That's what it teaches us. How can we not forgive if we truly believe the love of Christ for us? How can we not be humble? How can we not be gentle with other people? We can keep going on. It applies to every mess that you make. Because every mess in your life demonstrates a failure to understand God's love for you in Christ Jesus. This is why it's so important. Again, this is why Paul's praying this, I believe. It's how you live your life is shaped entirely by your understanding of the love of Christ for you. So when you're making a mess, and you're gonna make one at some point, we all do. Maybe you're making a mess in your seat right now. I mean that figuratively, by the way. But when you're making a mess of your life, I want you to ask this question of yourself, or, or go to a friend and say this, something like this: "How is this behavior the result of my failure to rest in the love of Christ for me?" That's, that's a fair question to ask. And I believe the answer to that question, if you have a good friend, or if you're really being uh, self-examining or doing self-examination, then the answer to that question will, be, will open the door to true change in your life. And then why does Paul offer this prayer to God? Because of what the love of Christ is, undeserved, and because of what the light, love of Christ does. And it changes the direction of your life. So we've seen the details, the reason. And now we want to look at briefly the recipient of this prayer. So we've already seen in verse 20 that Paul prays to a God who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can think or all we can ask. But just as important as the power of God in our prayers, verse 14 and 15, is the kind of God that we pray to. Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. The recipient of this prayer is your heavenly Father. And this should be great encouragement to you. Paul is not praying to some distant deity or some statue on the wall, but to a father who will order all his power to do you good, who has promised to do that. And this is why Paul describes the heavenly father in verse 15 as the one from whom every family, or literally every fatherhood in heaven on, and on earth is named. In other words, he's inviting us to look at our own fathers, our own parents, and ask this. If our fathers, even though they are evil know how to give good gifts to us, how much more will the father of fatherhood give us give, give, give good gifts to us? And because we pray to this kind of God, we can know that like the best of fathers, he loves to gives up, give us good gifts. As a, as a father of two, actually three, I have one on the other side already, there's no greater joy and seeing my kids open up a gift for me. I mean, that, that is so fun, especially if it's something that they really want. And just, uh, I, I can't even wait till Christmas. Usually, I'm giving it to them like three days before because I get so excited about it. I love to give my kids gifts. Likewise, the Heavenly Father loves to give His children things, the, the good things that we ask for. So if you pray this prayer of first, or Ephesians 3, you better buckle up. Because the Heavenly Father is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. He can't wait to answer this prayer for you in your life. He can't wait to answer it. Yet how few of us pray this prayer. This prayer to know the love of Christ for us. To to come to fully realize God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you, do you view him this evening as this type of Father? A heavenly father? A loving father? Or do you view him as someone who's just out there that doesn't really care about me? Who isn't interested in us? Maybe a father who's ashamed of us because of what we did today or what's going through our minds. A father that's ready to squash us like a bug when we mess up. Guys, this is not the heavenly father. The father who receives this prayer is a father who loves you so much that he didn't withhold anything from you he gave us everything in giving us Christ. And if he gave us Christ, the demonstration of his love, he will certainly give us more knowledge of his love of, in Christ. So again, this is the recipient of Paul's prayer. So what we have seen so far, the details of Paul's prayer, the reason for Paul's prayer, the recipient of Paul's prayer. So I want to close um, by talking about the key to seeing this prayer fulfilled in your life. No magic formula here. Two things. First, pray. Pray for it. James says, you don't don't have because you don't ask. If you want to come to know the love of Christ more for you, pray. Don't stop praying for it. This is too important. We're saying this is what directs the, the, the flow of your Christian life. It's too important to neglect. second key is found in a little phrase tucked away in verse 18. If you want to look there. He prays that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height and depth. And the key that I'm pulling from here is the word, or the phrase, with all the saints. And John Stott, I'm going to steal from him here. This is what he said. He says, we shall have power to comprehend these dimensions of Christ's love only with all the saints. The isolated Christian can indeed know something of the love of Jesus, but his understanding of it is bound to be limited by his limited experience. It it needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God. In other words, you can't learn the incomprehensible love of Christ on your own. God intends for us to do it together with all the saints. You can't get there solo. We're designed God has made us to operate in community. As you live out the Christian life with others, you'll quickly come to understand and learn that you're not alone in your struggles. That the thoughts that you're having, the, the, the struggles that you're dealing with, you're not alone in that. What you'll find is as you start sharing that, that the love of Christ will start pouring out to you from other believers as they're sharing their struggles. And again, you're seeing that they're dealing with the same thing, so you're finding help in the midst of your struggles. You're getting help from other believers as they fight through the mess of their life to help you fight through the mess of your life. This is how it works. And in doing so, God has designed the church in this way to point us all to the love of Christ from one another. As we begin to take in the love of Christ, we begin to walk in it and we begin to share it with others. So this evening, as we think through the incomprehensible love of Christ... We need to understand this. We're going to need each other to get there. Look around you. These are your your friends, your brothers and sisters, this fellowship that God has provided you with. All of you play a role in this. The body's being built up in love by you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, all of us. It's with all the saints that we might know this love that Christ has that surpasses our knowledge let me close with the following words from the Apostle Paul, verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the love that you have demonstrated to us through Christ Jesus our Lord. You have sent him so we may know love. By this we know love, that you laid down your life for us. So I pray this evening, I I have no doubt that even in my own heart, the insecurities of my own heart, my constant falling from, from, from grace into my own performance... I'm not alone in my own struggles, that there's people here that struggle with that, that is constantly trying to, to please you and constantly fearing that you're going to squash us like a bug. Teach us that it was while we were yet sinners that you died for us, while we were dead in our sins, that you demonstrated your love for us, that we come to understand the nature of this undeserved and unconditional love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. And I pray this evening that it's this love that transforms our heart, our our minds, our our motivations, that we may learn to walk in love as you have loved us. I pray that you take this mess of what I call a sermon, that your spirit takes it and perfects it and applies it to each of our hearts this evening for the good of the gospel, the good of your church, all for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.